Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Candela Marini, your host, and today we're talking with William Agri about his book *Staging Frontiers: The Making of Modern Popular Culture in Argentina and Uruguay*, published by University of New Mexico Press in 2019. The book traces the growth and impact of popular entertainment, particularly the Creole circles phenomenon in the late 1800s in the Rio de la Plata region. And it won the 2020 Best Book Award in the 19th Century section of Latin American Studies Association. And it will soon be published by Prometeo Editorial in Spanish. Um, so congratulations for that. And welcome, uh, William McCree. And thank you so much for accepting our invitation and here being here with us today. Thank you so much, Candela. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's so great to, to be able to join you um, in, this, in this forum. Um, I really appreciate the chance to speak a bit about this book. Um, and um, and just eager to you know get get the word out. Um, and thanks too for mentioning that the translated version uh, is is coming out with Prometeo. Actually, I got a uh, got word two days ago that it was published, and so oh, oh, oh it'll that's be so up cool. on the bookshelves. Yeah, <laughs> we can then do the interview in Spanish. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so you're currently an associate professor of Spanish at Washington University in San Luis. You are also the Director of Graduate Studies in Hispanic Studies and Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Race, Ethnicity, and Equity. You're also the author of Everyday Reading, Print Culture, and Collective Identity in the Rio de la Plata, 1718-1910, and also the editor and co-editor of several books like The Gaucho Juan Moreira, Building 19th Century Latin America, Jacinto Ventura de Molina, Los Caminos de la Escritura Negra en el Rio de la Plata, and Empires and Transnational Connections in the Hispanic World. So um, your research is fascinating. And before we delved into your last book, could you share a little bit of how you got interested in the cultural history of the Rio de la Plata region? Uh, what got you started? How did you get hooked? <laughs> yes, how did I get hooked? Thank, thanks thanks for the introduction. It's really generous uh, introduction. How did I get hooked? Um, Oh, it's a, it was a path uh, with many twists and turns. Um, so I'll, I'll just try to be really brief about it. Um, so I, w- I went to went to college at Barry College, which is a small school in North Georgia, um, and and I ended up going to Spain after my third year um, for this study abroad experience. And I ended up staying. I was supposed to be there for six weeks, and I stayed for nine months. Um, I ended up living with uh, with Argentines and with Peruvians. Um, and that was really the sort of the first time I started thinking about um, Latin America, Latin American experiences, but also thinking about Latin Latin American studies per se, right? And so that got me um, sort of on on the track, on the road to pursuing this field of study in graduate school, which uh, which I attended at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, and there, I you know I started out with a a fairly clear interest in the connections between science and, and nation or nationalism. Um, in, in Argentina, I had read a lot about positivism and I was really drawn to thinking about sort of science as a political framework for nation uh, building, right? Um, and that essentially, you know, led me to think more about nationalism uh, in graduate school. And that became uh, this research project that you mentioned, Everyday Reading, um, and I was particularly interested in interested in how feelings of nationalism and national identity took root. And so, you know, I, I started thinking about that, um, and I looked uh, primarily at the public education system in Argentina. And uh, and a professor who ended up being one of my um, my most important mentors, um, John Chastain. Um, put me on the track to look at Uruguay alongside Argentina and to think really in regional terms um, because of this shared history, right? Shared regional history in Latin America 
um, but also because just in terms of sort of 19th century nation building and um, exchanges among politicians and, and in policies and so forth, there was so much that happened on a regional level rather than um, on distinct and distinct sort of national confines terms in the context of Argentina and Uruguay. Um, and so that's, that's kind of sort of how I got hooked with that. Um, that project, you know, I said it focused at the beginning on national identity and nationalism and, and the roots of that uh, in education. But I quickly, as I got into the, the work for it, I quickly learned that I had to go pretty far back in the past. Um, and I ended up looking into sort of the, the emergence of print culture uh, and the, the arrival of the first printing presses and the, the printing revolution that accompanied the, the wars for independence in the region, how that ended up trans, transforming the way people interacted with the printed word, uh, mostly through listening to things read aloud, uh, and then seeing this real sort of explosion in the world of popular print media, uh, again, connected to politics in the 1830s and 40s and 50s um, in, in Argentina and in Uruguay. This is a period of pretty intense civil war, as you know. Um, and a lot of this popular print media uh, in the form of newspapers and in poetry um, tried to reach out to uh, rural residents, right? These people of the countryside, um, gauchos, right? The, the cowboys of the region. And and this was done through the gauchesque, this sort of voice of the countryside. And in many cases, these uh, these newspapers, these poems were, um, there were these fictionalized characters, right? Who were trying to inculcate some kind of party affiliation or or to politicize uh, a group of, of residents. And so that world of, of popular literature and thinking about everyday intersections or interactions between people and cultural products was kind of the, I guess my starting point for getting hooked on the cultural history of, of the region. And then I'll just add a, a last thing here if I can um, and say that, you know, I mentioned, mentioned one mentor. I was really fortunate in graduate school to work with a, a, a great group of, of professors uh, and graduate students too. Um, but people who uh, came from the world of theater. So um, Stuart Day was um, a really important um, mentor for me too. And he's a, a performance studies scholar. Um, and he was also a, a real sort of guide for me in terms of thinking about the, the lasting or the enduring power of the mundane uh, when it comes to performance and, and the theatrical. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and this book is, is kind of an immersive experience in, in that world of the theater and circuses and parades and everything Creole related. Um, and you mentioned it already. So uh, with, in relation to the literature, but all these spectacles were celebrating the figure of the gaucho. Um, so maybe before we delve deeper into your book, you could explain briefly what the gaucho is in the Rio de la Plata context? Sure. Um, so uh, the the idea or the sort of this historical figure, right, the gaucho um, was, you know, throughout the 1700s, um, early 1800s was effectively uh, uh, a nomadic figure that worked with cattle um, on what would be sort of the, the frontier of southern South America, right, in the context of Argentina, vast grasslands, right, the Pampas. Uh, but also in Uruguay and in, and in southern Brazil. Um, and then, you know, throughout the 1800s, this figure, this, uh, this uh, uh, cow, cow hand or ranch hand ended up working in much more confined spaces, right, on large estates, um, not so much following uh, these, these wild animals across these grasslands, but uh, working uh, on these large estates um, and transforming the, the existence that... Um, that they had had prior to, let's say, the, the 1820s, 1830s. Um, and that, that figure throughout the Wars of Independence um, in Argentina and in Uruguay became uh, a revered, and I would say also a, a feared figure too, right? They were revered in the sense that they, um, 
uh, were recruited to, to fight against uh, Spaniards and against the, the Spanish, uh, Spanish military. Um, they had extensive experience with weapons um, or with uh, objects that could be used as weapons. Um, they were expert, uh, on hor- experts on horseback um, because of the work that they did with animals in the countryside. And so they could quickly sort of translate that everyday work experience into uh, sort of military, um, military advantages against the Spaniards. Um, and, and feared too, uh, in the sense that some of the, the most prominent um, and let's say the, the most widely known politicians of the 1800s in, in Argentina and in Uruguay, and in Uruguay were uh, these Caudillo figures, right? Um, who had this sort of experience um, in the military, or at least they were also able to demonstrate their dexterity on horseback. They were sort of these idolized um, cultural figures, uh, gauchos, but, but not necessarily of the, of the common sort in the sense that most of the sort of the, uh, the elite um, politicians who were able to show their expertise on horseback came from very well-off families, um, but they were able to tap into that world of the popular um, experience in the countryside, very masculine experience in the countryside um, as a way to, uh, again, to recruit people uh, to, to follow them. So that became sort of their, um, their client base, right? These were the, the patron uh, patrons who ended up uh, being able to form these really strong bands of, of men uh, throughout the 1800s. And so there was already throughout the, the early and mid 1800s, sort of this idea of the gaucho, right? Um, as a, a real figure in the, the lives of Argentines and Uruguayans, but it also became more of uh, a cultural type um, as the years went on in the 1800s. And I mentioned the literature, right? The gauchesque, um, that was deployed from the 1810s onward um, as a form of political outreach. And this, this literature ended up um, sort of transforming what was real, right? This real historical figure into something that was much more mythical um, and distanced from what was the real. Uh, and that's particularly the case, you know, after the 1850s when, you know, you have these men who are working much more often uh, in these confined spaces of, of ranches or estates, they're no longer the nomadic, uh, solitary figures, right, um, on their own in the countryside. They're ranch hands. Um, and what we see then in, in, in poetry and in narratives, right, and there are many narratives that end up getting uh, published, written and published uh, about these figures in the second half of the century is that sort of uh, nostalgia for this mythical figure, the figure that has become transformed into a myth that no longer corresponds to a reality. Um, and these, you know, these types end up becoming widely, widely circulated. Um, I'll just name, if I can really quickly, you know, the, the poem that maybe some listeners have heard ta- uh, mentioned, it's uh, um, Martin Fierro, right? The Gaucho Martin Fierro. Um, now basically the, the celebrated national poem of Argentina, um, <laughs> celebrated as well in, in, in Uruguay and in, and in other places too. But um, it was sort of the, the second most popular uh, gaucho story of the 1800s, second to another one that was not a poem, it was a, a narrative uh, about the life of Juan Moreira, right? So uh, in contrast to Martin Fierro, who was this fictionalized gaucho figure, uh, in this poem, Juan Moreira was a, a, a real life gaucho um, who lived a, a life of, of crime. Um, and after his death uh, was transformed through narrative and then later uh, and more forcefully the theater into this sort of celebrated icon of, uh, of what country life uh, was and, and sort of the idea of this, this national um, Creole spirit. And I say national, not in the sense of Argentina, but in the sense of Creole Platense, um, because Moreira, the story of Moreira and the idea of the Creole as a synonym for the national um, was as much a, an Uruguayan thing as it was an Argentine thing. 
Um, before we explore more like his transition from the myth to literature and to theater, could you maybe ex uh, talk a little bit about the origins of uh, the theater scene in Argentina and Uruguay? Because it remains even today a very popular form of entertainment, uh, even when there are so many other options. Um, so yes, what, what are the beginnings of the popularity of this drama culture in the region? Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for asking that question. Um, and that's really one of the, the main reasons that I got into the, the writing of this book, right? Staging Frontiers. Um, I mean, part of it was, part of my interest sort of was born during the, the research I did for everyday reading, um, thinking about popular literature, right? And sort of reading some of the, the plays that uh, became all the, the rage in the late 1800s. Um, but I was also always fascinated always fascinated by um, this theater going culture, right? Every time I would spend, you know, uh, re doing research in, in Argentina or in Uruguay, I was always fascinated by the number of theaters um, and the number of plays offered and the fact that people go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a cool <laughs> thing to go to the theater. And it's, and it's more than just going to the theater. It's, it's a social event, right? It's a social affair. Yeah, uh, I really miss going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, people, it's, you mingle and then you eat something or drink something, uh, and it ends up being sort of this hours-long uh, affair that happens on a regular or repeated basis. And I was like, where did this Where did this come from? What are the connections here? And are there any links to what was, you know, this world of the circus and popular theater at the end of the 1800s? So I, kind of, I started with sort of that big question, and it ended up, you know, again, sort of pushing me backwards in time to look at the, like you were saying, the origins of the origins of theater um, or spectacle or entertainment in the Rio de la Plata, which like in other places around Latin America was tied to, um, to, to royal, uh, royal pomp and religious uh, festivals, right? So we're talking the colonial period, colonial years. Um, so every time, you know, there was, some event related to the king or royal authorities. There was some kind of spectacle tied to it. Um, and the same goes for major, you know, re uh, religious holidays in the Catholic calendar, Corpus Christi, um, January the 6th. Um, so these days that were, you know, very significant and that lent themselves to uh, entertainment. Um, and the, the first theaters in the region um, were effectively tied to, uh, to those kinds of Kinds of spectacles. Um, although after, I would say during and after independence, uh, things shifted pretty significantly. Um, so in the starting in the 1820s, and this is, I guess, probably much more relevant to the origins of contemporary theater going, um, there began to, to be a steady stream of performers that uh, came to the region uh, primarily from Europe. Um, beginning in the 1820s, so England and France and Italy, um, and these these performers, uh, and they ranged from stunt people um, to uh, to figures from the European opera scene um, to early uh, circus groups. They ended up, you know, creating what was this real performance network or circuit, right? So, the Rio, Rio de la Plata offered what was uh, fairly unique um, in Latin America. And that was sort of this um, river network where people or performers could travel quickly from one town or city to another. And the cities were pretty close to one another too, right? So thinking of Buenos Aires and Montevideo sort of facing each other across the, the Rio, the river. But at the same time, you had this string of smaller towns um, going up the up the river there too, and up the, the Paraná um, River um, northward in Argentina. And so, you know, performers could come and spend uh, months or years working this circuit of 10 to 15 to 20 towns at a time, right? And and just going, you know, they would spend, spend their time in one area until they uh, wore out their welcome and then would move on to the next town. And so from the 1820s on to the end of the century, you have sort of this buildup um, thanks to these hemispheric, what I call these hemispheric travelers who end up bringing the world to the region on the stage. 
Um, and there we're not really talking about stages per se, right? We're talking about, you know, tents outside, uh, occasionally some more formal spaces until the 1850s uh, and 60s, where you have these, uh, you know, formal theaters that began uh, to be uh, constructed. And that was that's sort of like the backstory, right, of the theater going public um, that you were asking about. And, and you call them, uh, these hemispheric travelers, you call them cultural intermediaries. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, because we, we have also heard a lot about the, the other kind of travelers, right? The more scientific explorers, like uh, the humble style. And, um, and you explained very nicely how these this cultural intermediaries um, related, had a different kind of connection with the local community, right? And, and Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, thank you for, for pointing that out too. Um, so yeah, I mean, in, in this second chapter, uh, which focuses on these cultural intermediaries, the hemispheric travelers, um, we, we look at, you know, several examples of these, right? So starting with Sarah Bernhardt um, at the, uh, well, in the mid 1880s, right? And then sort of tracing the, these travelers back in time. Um, what did they do that was distinct from the sci the scientific traveler, uh, the group of people who came to the region throughout this, well, throughout the colonial period and on throughout the 1800s too? And the, the scientists um, or the scientific travelers and oftentimes, you know, Europeans who would come spend some time uh, in, the, in Latin America and the Rio de la Pata, they go back and write about their travels. They were coming to, to study. <laughs> Uh, study something right of the related to the natural world or uh, landscape um, or because they were wealthy enough to come spend several months or years at a time traveling around Latin America and then go back and and write about it um, but in, in contrast to those travelers the these performers or these cultural intermediaries they were trying to make a living um, with the shows that they put on um, So they would, I mean, the, the whole reason that they, they traveled to South America in the first place was to find new audiences, right? To try their luck at, um, at striking it rich, uh, hacer la América, <laughs> as, the, as the saying goes, uh, with the hope of being able to return uh, to Europe um, afterward. And as I mentioned, you know, so many of these people ended up staying or making their careers in, in South America. Um, and... You know, they uh, they were trying to make a living. They oftentimes uh, connected with local politicians, uh, offering these benefit shows, right? Trying to sort of ingratiate themselves with the the, the local clients, right? The the local audiences, um, and they tried to respond to to audience wishes, right? So if a show ended up being or a spectacle ended up being popular, then it would be repeated, or there would be some kind of spinoff on that show. Um, And at the same time that they were trying to make a living, they were effectively sort of bridging, bridging, bridging spaces, people's uh, ideas. They were um, sort of the mechanisms through which culture flowed from one hemisphere to another um, without necessarily doing that on purpose. Um, and so when you have, you know, these Italian stuntmen um, bringing, you know, circus tricks to the region, Um, or bringing, you know, acts of strength, demonstrations of strength, they, they brought some kind of sort of cultural experience uh, to audiences who had not seen those things beforehand, right? They had not seen the, the Italian performer, the, the French uh, opera singer, or the, the English uh, stunt uh, woman prior to these travelers coming to the region. And so They were really uh, introducing sort of this transatlantic um, performance experience to these small towns where uh, otherwise people would not have any any opportunity to see them. So in that sense, they were these intermediaries, right, between different cultures. Yeah, and I imagine they would also like take things from the different cultures that they were visiting and, yeah, creating this whole circuit. And um, before... Uh, we go into the craziness of the Creole dramas. You explain uh, how the, <laughs> the um, circuses were very, very popular, right? Uh, how did they take off? And the question shows as well. Yeah. Um, so circuses 
ended up becoming really popular, especially from the, let's say the 1860s through the 1880s, 90s. Um, And they were popular for a couple main reasons, right? Um, So on one hand, um, we mentioned before that, you know, the gauchos were these experts on horseback, but um, a lot of things happened on horseback in the Rio de la Plata, right? So when we when we read travelers' accounts of life in the 1800s and earlier in Argentina and, and in Uruguay, um, travelers were always surprised to see so many people doing things without getting off horses. Um, and so it sounds it sounds a bit silly, right, from our <laughs> perspective today, but um, you had sort of this experience with horses in the region as sort of this element of daily life. And so um, the circus, one of the, the things that uh, was most um, popular of these shows was um, the equestrian spectacle, right? And so uh, there was sort of this natural local connection to life on horseback transformed into show um, that the circus circuses capitalized on. And, and circus groups started, I, I said, you know, from 1860s onward, they started to flow into the region before that, um, you know, 1820s, 30s, and 40s. But the sort of the main thrust of circus shows came in the 1860s and 70s. And they came from um, from Europe, uh, primarily Italy and England. So you have these big circus troops um, from England and circus families from Italy who were making, uh, making these tracks. And then... Um, to my fascination, right, when I was doing this work, you have this uh, significant stream of circus families going from the United States down to South America. Mm. Um, and in part, they're leaving the U.S., you know, U.S. South um, because of this, the Civil War. Um, and then many of them are performing, too, on the, on the West Coast. Um, and then they make their way down to Mexico and then farther south. Um, and so you have, again, sort of this uh, phenomenon of, of traveling circus troops um, who end up spending a lot of time or, or years, um, if not their entire careers, um, creating these circus events down in Argentina and in Uruguay. And there too, I mean, they found these, um, these audiences uh, in different towns uh, to be easily accessible. And so they made this a, a destination, right? Or a place to stay. Um, so the, the, those circuses ended up creating what was, I guess, uh, a really um, primed environment for what was going to hit the stage, so to say, with the Creole drama phenomenon. Right. Okay. So yeah, now we are in the second half of the 19th century, and if yeah, if we were to time travel, we would witness <laughs> the crazy popularity of the Creole drama. I mean, the numbers. I was I was really surprised by the numbers that you quoted. I, I was expecting that, and. Um, there's without a doubt like one name that seems to be at the start of uh, even the idea of the Creole drama, and that is Jose Podesta. Um, who was he and what role did he play in popularizing these stories? Oh, that's a, such a good question. So Jose Podesta um, was the leader of a circus family, right? This group of brothers and sisters, um, um, second generation Italian immigrant family. Um, that settled uh, in, well, in Argentina, but uh, the, the kids grew up in Montevideo. Um, and Jose Podesta and, uh, and his, his brothers and sisters um, ended up in their, in their youth, right? Um, even before teenagers, they ended up sort of practicing what they described as these stunts or tricks that they would develop into acts when they formed their first their first uh, youth uh, acrobatic troupe, um, which they created in their in their teens, um, and they ended up so Jose Podesta again as sort of the the leader of this group of uh, of family members. They ended up joining forces with a couple different traveling circus troops that were in the region. So one of these was from France. Um, another of these was from Italy. They contracted as, you know, these uh, European families were traveling in Argentina and Uruguay in the 18, uh, 1870s. They ended up contracting 
um, these local kids to perform with them. Um, they added, you know, some additional flair to what they were offering as spectacle. And they also offered, and this was a fairly common or became a common thing, right? Where you'd have these, um, these European or U.S. groups that came into the region, they would, uh, they would look for local talent. Um, and the local talent uh, added this other layer to their shows. Um, and it was also a way to, to sort of transform what was or what could be perceived as this foreign spectacle into something that was much more, um, much more in agreement with what people uh, were familiar with. And that was exactly what the, the Podesta family did, right, um, when, they were, when they joined these European families, European groups. Right, and and so how did, um, yeah, how did he um, decided to how did he decide to um, adapt the Juan Moreira experience to the whole circus uh, yeah. experience? So this is this is like the the spark that lit the fire, um, right? <laughs> effectively, so there was there was this U.S. family, U.S. circus family, the Carlo brothers. Um, and the Carlo brothers are, you know, they're one of a, a couple uh, sort of key players in this um, in this entertainment scene in the 1870s and 1880s. The Carlo brothers, um, they were operating in uh, throughout the region, but in uh, in the early 1880s, they were in Buenos Aires, um, and they had, you know, put on this run of shows, and they were um, they were trying to figure out ways to uh, create some new excitement in, in the last shows that they were going to offer before leaving town. And they ended up getting connected um, with a local impresario um, who, uh, whom they asked about what they could do to, to add some excitement to the show. Oh, right. um, and then the, you know, the connection was made to, to Eduardo Gutierrez, right, who was the author of um, 30 plus narratives, right? These serialized narratives, uh, many of which trace sort of these uh, gaucho figures or, or famous, by then famous criminals, um, their lives in Argentine newspapers. Uh, so he was a, a best-selling author um, who just churned out story after story. And um, and the best-selling of his best-selling uh, narratives was the story of Juan Moreira um, that had been published in 1879 and 1880. Um, first in the newspaper, um, and then it was printed as a, as a book, and it became just this this story that was picked up all around the region. Hmm. Um, and the idea came from uh, from Gutierrez to the Carlo family that uh, that they could possibly uh, try to create some sort of dramatic adaptation of the story of Moreira oh, to be part of this show. The idea came from Gutierrez. Yeah, well, so it was the, sort of the connection via this um, this impresario and Gutierrez, right? That, that they could incorporate this story uh, into into the show, and it was first. It was just a pantomime, um, right? There were no there was no dialogue with it. Um, it was just sort of the the acting out with some music and singing, but no no dialogue. Um, and you'd have the the, the Podesta family um, who would dress up. Uh, in the, the sort of the costumes of, of gauchos and the justice of the peace. Um, and I think I'm trying to remember this, this correctly I'm, from the book, um, <laughs> I think Gutierrez requested that Podesta play the figure of Moreira. If I remember that correctly. Uh, yeah. I th yeah. I think, yeah, I think you say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, that was sort of the, the beginning of the connection of the Creole, right? This sort of fascination with the gaucho as myth um, and the connection of that to this world of the circus spectacle, right? That was kind of the birth of what would become the Creole Creole circus um, in okay. 1884. Okay, so I, I got it, I got it a little wrongly that Gutierrez then was, was open from the start to the idea of, uh, of the I don't know, transposition of the uh, of his work to the uh, stages of the circus as a pantomime. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. 
I so thought, yeah, yeah, Gutierrez was open to it and then never showed any more interest in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, that was kind of the, the, I guess, the curious piece of this, right? Um, Gutierrez was open to the adaptation of it, um, but it wasn't until 1886 that dialogue was added to, to the story, right, to the dramatic version of it. So in 1884, it was just the pantomime, and then in 1886, it's, it's Podesta, um, right? Jose Podesta, who ends up adding the the dialogue, but it, after the after the fact, Gutierrez um, didn't attend didn't attend any of the plays, uh, and it was only you know after the Podesta family had become um, the the most celebrated uh, performers of these types of dramas um, in the region in the early 1890s. It was only then after Eduardo had died that that his spouse uh tried to sue the Polista hmm. family for for rights and royalties <laughs> well you can try <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's yeah yeah and and could you explain i mean this is a moment then when it, it it becomes like incredibly popular and a whole phenomenon could you describe this whole like uh experience for the audiences what <laughs> what it would feel like what how they would react Yeah. Um, so I, I mentioned, you know, the pantomime version of this story of Juan Moreira, right? The, the good gaucho who, who goes bad, um, sort of the, the honest, noble figure from the countryside um, who ends up uh, fighting uh, against the police, the justice of the peace because of wrongs committed against him um, by the state, right? So that's sort of the arc of the story of mm -hmm. these Of at least the initial group of these plays. Um, that story of sort of good versus evil, right? You have the noble versus the corrupt. Um, it, it's, it's really popular. So that's 1884. The pantomime version of it comes out. You know, the story has been in the air because of the narrative uh, that was in the newspapers and then in the book. That gets transformed into this play uh, with words in 1886 that, that then becomes sort of... Um, the thing to see, right? So 1886, you have the Podesta family traveling from one town to another across the region, and they're performing Juan Moreira all over the place, night after night after night after night. Uh, and people just fill up these venues where they're performing. Um, and, and I'll just say this before sort of describing what the experience was like. You know, that leads to sort of a, a replication of the storyline and a dozen or so other similar plays by other authors, um, other author, authors who had experience writing uh, Gauchesque poetry, authors who did not have that experience and write, they just capitalized on this sort of craze uh, on this, um, this fad of the moment uh, and ended up becoming best-selling authors in their own right. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can talk about one of them down the line, uh, Elias Fregules, who's a really interesting figure. Uh, in his own right, but the experience was, it was pretty wild. Um, and it, I mean, it's, it's, we have, we have photographs of Creole circus experiences, uh, and we have some pretty rich descriptions in the press, uh, by actors themselves or by people who were admirers of the Podestas and other actors. Um, Yeah, I was going to ask you about that too. How were you able to reconstruct all these experiences? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's it's triangulating or sort of combining, you know, different sources uh, to try to get a sense of what it was like. You have descriptions of, you know, the smells and the sounds. Um, yeah. And so basically, the the Creole drama, right, which is this drama that was the story of the good gaucho gone bad. Um, Was, was the main event or the main attraction of the Creole circus or what was the broader spectacle that people went to see. And the broader spectacle consisted of usually, um, you know, some opening music, um, some Creole airs is usually the term that you see on these programs um, for the shows or sort of local, local music. Um, Towards the end of the 1880s, this local music ended up becoming a sight to see in and of itself. And so you have these uh, troubadours, these improvisational um, guitarists and singers who would either perform solo or they would they would compete with each other on stage as sort of the opening act. Hmm. Um, 
And so these pachadores, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the term in Spanish. And and one of these in particular, Gavino Ezeiza, um, became the the most famous of these uh, these improv- improvisational musicians. Gavino Ezeiza, Afro-Argentine musician who ended up, you know, um, starting out with the Podestas, making a name for himself as an opening act and then becoming sort of this virtuoso performer, you know, offering shows uh, alone, solo shows or, you know, engaging in these hours and days long competitions with other other musicians. So you had the music at the beginning, you have some some gymnastic uh, or equestrian stunts that were performed. Um, occasionally there was a military band. And so this interesting intersection of sort of state representation with this popular uh, entertainment. Uh, and then the thing that everybody wanted to see was the Creole drama, right? And so the Creole drama, um, you know, uh, at the outset, it occurred in, you know, these under tents, um, occasionally out in the open before it was moved into a formal theater space. Um, and there they tried to recreate sort of a circular pit of sorts um, where everything was created or was deployed to give it the, the sense of being as real as possible. And so you have horses that race across the stage or the performance area, right? Um, you have dirt, you have the performers that are smoking or, you know, roasting meat on a bonfire <laughs> in the middle of the performance area, right? Um, you have uh, gauchos that are shearing the wool off of sheep um, as part of the show. I mean, not in Juan Moreira, but in another play, that's the, the opening act is, uh, is just that, right? No, there's no dialogue. You just have these guys on stage um, uh, trimming wool off sheep for the first several minutes. And that's all the audience saw. Um, so, I mean, it was sort of this uh, experience that enveloped all your senses. So sight, smell, um, the, the dialogue that occurred. Um, the lighting was often pretty bad, um, provided by these kerosene lamps when it was indoors um, in the evening. Uh, and, and the kerosene lamps themselves, you know, they let off, uh, you know, smoke and, and they smelled um, pretty bad. Um, there was music that was part of these shows. Um, and oftentimes there was audience participation that was really significant. Um, and so you have uh, and, and many of the Creole dramas, these uh, dance scenes um, and uh, the audience or audience members could participate in dance scenes with uh, with the performers. Um, I say we could say actors, too, but uh, I mean, most of the people that participated in the Creole drama phenomenon, uh, they were not formally trained in any way. Um, and the Podestas are the I guess the best example of this. Right. You have, again, this family. They grew up jumping off rocks in the river and learning how to do all these kinds of tricks um, before they ended up, you know, staking their fame on the story of the gaucho hero. Uh, and and none of them, uh, at least of the original group, none of them had any formal training. Um, but they were they became, you know, fabulous, uh, fabulous and celebrated performers. And who was uh, who was part of the audience? Was there any kind of um, social integration? Uh, yeah. So I, I'm really glad you asked that too, because um, I think you know when I think back on this project, um, or when I was you know I guess deep in the research of it, the two things that most stood out to me were sort of the frequency and popularity of the shows. Right. So from 1886 to, to the late 1890s, basically 15 years, uh, you could find a Creole drama pretty much every night um, and sometimes multiple times per day. There was a, a matinee show and then there was one in the evening um, in Buenos Aires and Montevideo. And when, you know, when these circus troops or these uh, Creole uh, drama families, the Podestas and others, took the shows to, to smaller towns, you know, that the same thing was the case. Um, so you have, you know, pretty much every night a show. So there's this incredible frequency of, um, of the Creole on stage, right? So pretty much every day you have access or people had access to see these stories play out 
that was something that always stood out to me. And then the second big thing that goes to your question was the range of um, social interaction that took place across lines of class and ethnicity and occasionally race at these shows. Um, and so tickets were, there were a range of tickets. Um, there were tickets that were incredibly cheap. Um, so kids could go for free. Um, occasionally women could attend for free too. Um, and that was in part to sort of stimulate or uh, encourage the idea of the Creole drama as a family event, right? So people could go as a family. Um, there, were, there were tickets that were more expensive too. So if you wanted a seat, uh, when there were seats to be had, especially in theaters, right? Um, then the seats had a range of prices. Um, but it, it, what it allowed for was this really rich range of, um, of people in these audiences. Um, and we see that, you know, in description after description. Uh, newspapers in particular, when they had reviews of Creole dramas, they would describe, you know, who was at the play last night. And so you'd have, you know, a section talking about, um, you know, which, which women from, you know, the, the, the upper class families were there and who were they looking at. And then at the same time, you'd have a section talking about, you know, the, what was happening in the area where people were on foot. And, you know, if the, if a fight broke out or if, you know, somebody was stabbed after the play. <laughs> um, so those kinds of things too. But I mean, what we see is effectively, you know, this, uh, this range of audience participants, audience members and participants in this phenomenon. Um, and then we see, you know, see this too in other, other types of um, descriptions of, of the phenomenon throughout the 1890s, where you see sort of this transformation um, in the audience makeup. So if in the early years, you know, this was something that was primarily for uh, for workers or for working families. Um, in the early 1890s, it became sort of a, a much more widely viewed uh, spectacle. And you have, you know, um, doctors and lawyers um, and politicians, presidents, right? There are descriptions of presidents rubbing shoulders with um, with dock workers, right, in Buenos Aires at these plays. And that in and of itself, um, as I was saying, you know, was the, the second thing that really stood out to me because outside of, of the theater, um, Carnival was really the only other social, public social space for these kinds of interactions to happen. And, and that was just once a year, right? So we're talking, you know, in February, uh, the weeks of carnival celebrations in, in February. But with the, you know, these Creole dramas, you have them happening basically um, from March, uh, April, throughout the rest of the year. Um, January was kind of a slow month for the Creole drama phenomenon. February venues, performance venues were often taken up by carnival dances and so forth. Um, but otherwise, you know, you had access to this uh, on a sustained basis. Um, and so that I think is really significant when we think about the way people were able to relate to each other um, in the space of the, the performance and then the way those kinds of relationships could endure or at least the experiences of rubbing shoulders, right, with people from other classes, um, ethnicities, the way those kinds of interactions uh, could impact social life outside the theater is significant. Another phenomenon that you study and that I think reflects wonderfully the popularity of these Creole dramas is the um, formation of Creole societies. So what were these and why did so many of these societies appear? Mm. Um, thank you for asking that too, Candela. So the, the Creole societies um, are a great example of sort of the proliferation of this Creole spirit um, in the region, right? Um, It's a, they're, they're a great example of the Creole becoming effectively synonymous with the popular or with nation and, and identity towards the end of the 1800s. So Creole societies were basically clubs where people could get together and play gaucho. Um, that's kind of the, the succinct way to describe them. Um, 
And they started in 1894 was the foundation of the first Creole society in the region. Um, And it it took place in Uruguay uh, on the outskirts of Montevideo, um, led by, I mentioned this author beforehand, Elias Regules, um, who was a, uh, he was a medical doctor and he was, um, he was actually the dean of the medical school in, in Uruguay, but he was this um, ardent fan of all things Creole uh, and, and gaucho. Um, and he wanted to create this club um, with some of his friends, among whom were the Podesta brothers <laughs> um, and some other authors of, of what were Creole dramas and gauchesque po- uh, poetry. So they created the, the first of these uh, societies or these clubs. Um, and basically, so uh, what, they, what they did was they would create a space. They had a sort of a physical location, right, a headquarters where people could gather uh, on the weekends um, for food and dance, right? So folk dances became a really significant thing. Um, dances from the Argentine and Uruguayan countrysides. Um, these folk dances were part of the Creole dramas. Um, and then they ended up catching on sort of outside of the, the space of the, the dramas themselves um, with people seeking to learn folk dances, and then these folk dances becoming a major part of social socializing at the Creole clubs. Um, so food, dance, and dress, right? So people would dress up in, uh, in gaucho garb, gaucho costumes. And then a very significant aspect of these clubs too was the parading of, of the members through a town space, a town center, or a city center, right? And so um, with a club that has, you know, its headquarters on the outskirts of Montevideo or outside on the outskirts of Buenos Aires, you know, one of the the gatherings would end up taking all the members on horseback, oftentimes, um, to the the city center, um, right? So everybody could sort of see this performance of this membership in this club. Um, and these really pr- proliferated in terms of numbers. Um, and location throughout the region through the early 1900s in Argentina. Um, there were hundreds of these that formed uh, and in Uruguay as well. And in many cases, um, you were asking why were they so important? Um, in many cases, immigrant families or immigrant men um, and men were the, the primary members of these, although women did participate in them too, just not in the same numbers. Immigrant men joined these clubs in part uh, as a way of assimilating, um, right, to, to Uruguayan and to Argentine uh, society. Um, you know, again, sort of playing gaucho was a way to uh, to to become um, to become Uruguayan, to become Argentine, or at least to tap into what was the representation of that kind of identity. Um, and it was also a social network. Uh, so to say, right? So these are, you know, places where people can establish um, significant friendships or relationships. Um, and it's, you know, oriented around this particular uh, theme, right, of Creole, Creole-ness. Um, and in Brazil, they, they became uh, incredibly popular too. Brazil has the, the largest number of these Creole societies today. Um, and these are, you know, membership clubs that continue. Um, across across Argentina, Uruguay, uh, and in Brazil, so the the Creole society, um, yeah, it's this very significant social space um, that allows for the performance of the Creole outside of any kind of formal theater. Yeah, and then um, like looking at the other side, there were a lot of people that weren't so happy about the kind of influence this. Uh, Creole dramas could have. Um, there were some voices saying that they feared this place could um, encourage criminal behavior. Others that weren't that happy with the kind of national representation um, these spectacles were offering. Um, so what were the sources of this concern and what were they saying? Yeah, um, the sources of concern are uh, basically about who and what can represent 
national identity, right? Um, and in part, uh, the, these concerns arose out of uh, a backlash to the the popularity of of the Creole drama phenomenon in the 1890s. Um, even though there were, you know, there were other forms of entertainment that uh, that ended up drawing lots and lots of audiences uh, or numbers of people, um, and then would effectively overshadow or, or overtake the the place of Creole dramas, um, there was still this concern about the the effects such dramas were having on people outside of the space of the theater. Right. So, you know, when you have uh, sort of examples of public life, um, such as carnival or people in, uh, in dances in carnival dances or dressing up in carnival, uh, comparsas or these, uh, competition, uh, dance troops that were competing against each other. And you have them dressing up as gauchos. And then you have sort of this, um, phenomenon that's not directly related to the Creole drama, um, surge, but you have this phenomenon of, of crime, um, where many examples of, um, of people involved would cite Moreira or they would use knives, um, and they would get into these knife fights, um, uh, after, um, after Creole dramas, or they would talk about, um, demonstrating their toughness, uh, like the heroes of these Creole dramas. That was a source of concern, um, for, for politicians, um, and for people who were not uh, not keen on what these plays represented, right? So this is effectively utilizing the countryside as a representation of two two nations um, that were looking to Europe uh, for models of what it meant to be a, a modern nation um, in both Argentina and in Uruguay. And the I, I want to say that one of the real tipping points for these concerns was when. Um, you know, Argentina was um, was one of the nations represented at the at the World's Fair in well in 1889. But then again, in, in 1900 in Paris, they were supposed to be in Paris in 1900. Then they uh, they were not because of uh, budgetary uh, constraints. But um, there was news that uh, a group of Creole uh, drama performers was going to take the show to France to be part of the World's Fair and the Argentine exhibit, right? So this was effectively going to put the Creole drama on stage for international audiences to see um, as the example of what Argentina was was all about. Um, and that, uh, that uh, it didn't sit well with a lot of people um, who already um, were afraid of the ramifications that this phenomenon of popular culture was was having and so there was an attempt um to to condemn you know the the effect or the impact that such plays and this uh this fascination with the creole um was having at the same time you know in argentina uh, i'm trying to remember the the year i think it's 1897 um you have uh the performance of an opera um pampa that um was written by an Argentine uh, composer and performed in Italian, but it was based on the story of Moreira. So um, you have, you know, Juan Moreira who made it from uh, the serial narrative to the circus stage, to the theater, and now in the space of the opera. Um, and so, you know, there was sort of this un unstoppable um, force, it seemed like, that had to be dealt with in, in one way or another. Um, and I'll just say, just in closing on this particular point, that um, in the end, uh, the Creole drama phenomenon fizzled out on its own um, without any kind of broader intervention, right, from, uh, from politicians or from other cultural forces. Um, you know, effectively, it ran its course um, in the sense of being on stage for so long uh, in so many places. And then it ran up against at the same time, sort of this surge in other kinds of entertainment that the Creole drama, Creole drama phenomenon itself had given rise to, right? So what I'm saying is that there was this theater going public 
going back to the idea of people going out to see plays, that was created in part through the Creole drama phenomenon over a period of you know more than a decade. Um, and that theater going public discovered all kinds of other entertainment options at the theater um, that ended up you know taking attention away from Creole dramas themselves. And then the performers of those dramas tried to get in on those other opportunities too. So from both the ends of the audience, as well as from the ends of the performers too, um, the energy was sapped from the, the movement. I know we are running out of time, but since you mentioned welfares, I wanted to ask you one last question. Um, so the Creole dramas weren't an isolated phenomenon, right? There were around the world similar Uh, spectacles and um, I think a lot of the our listeners might be uh, familiar with uh, William Cody most well known as Buffalo Bill and his Wild West shows um, how how would you compare these kind of shows to the Creole dramas oh um, <laughs> yeah I'll just say um, briefly I mean they're they're similar um, in the sense that they to use the title of the book, they staged frontiers, right? Um, I mean, the, the Buffalo or the Wild West uh, show, or the Wild West phenomenon, right, um, was incredibly popular. Uh, in terms of numbers, you know, I think that they drew many more people than did the, the Creole dramas just because of the sort of the extent to which they traveled in the U.S. and then in Europe, too, Um In terms of sort of the content themselves, um, I think the the Wild West shows were um, they were more more violent, um, and they were much more um, explicit about staging confrontations between um, civilization and 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 barbarism. Right, that is staging confrontation between the the Rough Riders. Right, the the Cody's of the world, the men, the white men on horseback and the savage uh, indigenous populations of the U.S., uh, Midwest, the, the West, etc. Um, and that's something you just do not see in Creole drama, dramas. Um, and, I, you know, I talked about the good gaucho story going, uh, good gaucho going bad as, you know, the main arc of much of the Creole dramas. There was, you know, another group of plays, too, that effectively um, told the story of the gaucho becoming uh, a sort of a tranquil, civilized uh, ranch hand, um, you know, renouncing any kind of violence against the state um, and becoming sort of a happy-go-lucky uh, worker. Um, and that's something that we don't really see either in the Wild West shows. Um, you know, I, I know that the Podesta family... Uh, among others, we're familiar with the Wild West shows. Um, I don't know if, if Buffalo Bill um, and, and they were familiar with the Podestas per se. They were familiar with, with gauchos, right? They incorporated uh, gauchos on horseback uh, in their, their display of rough riders on horseback in their shows. Um, so there, there's some parallels. There's some distinctions, too. Um, You know, the Wild West show was part of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, uh, where it was hugely, hugely popular. Um, the Creole drama phenomenon, even though it threatened to be part of the World's Fair in 1900, from all, all the sources I've been able to, to cover, it, it never made it. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what happened in terms of why it was not there, uh, in addition to Argentina not making it to the fair itself. Uh, unless it was performed outside the official uh, fair space. Um, and I just, I just never found out if that was what ended up happening or not. Yeah, I'm, I would be curious to know too. <laughs> well, Billy, we've taken a lot of your time and thank you so much. Um, before wrapping up, are you, could I ask if you're working on something uh, new now or do you have any uh, new projects? <laughs> <laughs> Kind of. Um, yeah. So I started I started working on um, a project that's all about Latin American street cultures. Um, so everyday interactions in the public's in the public space of the street, um, basically from 1800 to the present. Um, so thinking about, um, you know, uh, street vending and 
uh, reading that takes place in the street and the interactions that people have on a on a daily basis again in the street. Um, and my real fascination with this is how is it that that streets um, connect with the formation of uh, or forms of citizenship in Latin America? Uh, in in contrast to what we see in in the United States or in other parts around the world, um, where street life or street cultures is not uh, not something that um, people experience on a regular basis. Yeah, you um, don't see people sitting outside. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's, I mean, here you know what we notice most is the lack of it, right? Um, yeah, the lack of sidewalks, even. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, it's something that I've started thinking about a lot. It's a collaborative project too, that I'm trying to, you know, connect with other people to, to carry out. Um, and so if, you know, if there's any interest out there, please let me know. I'm happy to, to connect you with, with the group of people that, uh, that started to think about this. And, um, you know, this just goes, goes along with my sort of running theme at this point, I guess. And that is, how do ephemeral experiences end up shaping entire lives? Um, so that's that's the thing I'm looking at, I guess, again, with the Street Cultures project. Well, I'm looking forward to reading your work again. <laughs> and again, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Candela, uh, for having me and for all the, the conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> thank you. Bye.